Michelob Ultra Tuscan Orange Grapefruit. My God, America is imploding. What's up? Welcome to Fan Zone. Uh, we're here for an interesting match. One that is bound to uh, confuse and horrify all three of the people on this desk. Um, we've got Caleb Coho from the Kingsman. Going up against Cameron Holtzman from the Kingsman. Uh, these two guys claim to be friends, but momentarily and in their opening promos, they're going to say things like, this is going to be fun. Like, we're going to have a good time. And then Coho is going to call someone a bitch. And it is all just going to go downhill from there. So I'm looking forward to this. Kirk, you're uh, helping me judge this one. Thank you. How are you doing today, sir? Good. Uh, looking forward to this one. When you get to uh, fighters who know each other really well, that always makes it a lot more interesting uh, because you got that familiarity, and familiarity breeds contempt. And I'm going to see a lot of contempt today. That's what I'm hoping for. So, Yeah. And uh, joining for the first time judging in a while, it is Nick Tuig. Nick, thank you for filling in. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, couch gang for life. Join, joining the couch gang. Uh, I'm also very excited for the same reasons. I, I want things to get personal, and I want feelings to get hurt. Yeah, don't we yeah. all? Uh, so let's let's bring in first uh, Cameron. Cameron, welcome. Uh, how are you feeling about your match today? Uh, I'm feeling good. Yeah, I I did a little bit of prepping. Uh, this is the first debate I've had in Fan Zone where I didn't do all of my debate prep whilst in a hospital. So that's fun. Um, it's a nice, it's a nice change of pace. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Uh, we're gonna bring in then Mr. Coho. Coho, welcome. Uh, Hi. We haven't seen you in a minute. The last yeah, time you were here, though, um, you did make it pretty far in uh, the uh, end of the tournament yeah. last year. You came down to the semifinals and played Rue. Um, yeah, I did. That was the last time we saw you. How are you feeling about the matchup today against Cam? I always get really, really, really hesitant whenever I get put in a debate room, not because I don't like love you guys and love doing this, but there's like a pit in my stomach every time where I'm like, oh shit, I gotta argue against someone, and it takes a lot of energy, and I have to like psych myself up through the whole weekend day to get ready to yell at someone. Um, I didn't have to do that this time um, because I yell at this man daily, uh, so it's pretty great. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. I expect Cam to just like get salty and like not talk to me for a week, regardless of the result, if he loses a point to me or not. Um, but this will be fun regardless. Um, and I will, I will <laughs> take this as, as seriously as I always do. This will be fun. But if uh, you lose, mm -hmm. will you send him a book on John Cazale? Uh I will not because I don't know who John Cazale is. I got you covered, Coho. <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I know who that is. It's okay. It's good. Here's the thing. Holtzman, Holtzman would not be able to read the first two chapters and understand what the fuck's happening in it, so it's okay. Okay. Starting early. I, already, I, I called it. Uh, so here's how the show is going to work. Uh, like I said, this is debate, so here's what's going to happen. Uh, the players drafted categories from the world of fandom and Warzone. 
Uh, we then wrote some questions to give them based on those categories, and they are going to debate them before our very souls this evening. So each player is going to have a one-minute opening, followed by a five-minute freeform between the two players, followed by a one-minute closing for each of the players. Uh, at the end of the question, Kirk, Nick, and I will write on our handy-dandy boards who we think should win said point. Whoever gets the two out of the three wins the point, and the first person to three points is the winner. If we are tied after the four prep questions, we will go to a bonus question. Gentlemen, do you have any questions? No. All right, well, then let's do this thing. All right, we are going to get into it with the first question, which was drafted by uh, the higher-ranked player, Mr. Coho, in the category of DC, specifically Superman. And we're going a little uh, different with this one. Your question is not a normal question. It's a pitch. We're going to get a pitch from both you guys, and we're going to have to decide what we think the best pitch is. So uh, the question, or the pitch is, pitch a sequel to Superman Returns. Uh, so Coho drafted this category. He's going to get to go first. Uh, Coho, you have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. So I think the thing that makes Superman Returns really special is that it captures the aesthetic and the feeling of the original Superman movies while also giving a more humanistic approach to the character and giving him some human uh, qual qualities and drama to go through. So my sequel would be called Superman Man of Tomorrow. Uh, picking up immediately after the follow it, uh, after the thwarting of Lex Luthor, Superman returns to active duty in Metropolis. Lois Lane finds it increasingly more difficult to hide the true parentage of her son, Jason, uh, but when he starts manifesting powers, it all sort of falls apart. So Clark starts taking Jason under his wing to sort of teach him how to adjust to his powers. And the two find a sort of struggle to connect because he's been gone for five years. They don't really know each other very well. Um, meanwhile, a Kryptonian named Kem L arrives on Earth with a mysterious connection to Krypton uh, as he and Clark start to sort of investigate each other. As Clark knows Krypton's gone, he's been to the ruins. He doesn't really know who this person is or what he has to do with them. Uh, at least to Kem L kind of trying to bond with his son and trying to get him to manifest his powers while Clark has to fight the Eradicator in Super Time. Time. All right. We'll move over to Cameron, who now has one minute to open his argument when he starts talking. So, 20 years after the events of Superman Returns, Superman is still our hero. He is still the, super, still the Superman that we know and love, but it's been 20 years since there's been any sort of big global threat that has threatened the Earth, and he's kind of growing slightly disillusioned to the idea of being Superman, because what is the point in being the man that Earth needs when Earth doesn't need you? Uh, he wants to live the life of a regular person. He wants to connect with this super-powered son that we know he has, but he has been shut out of his life because his parents fear the influence that Superman could have on him and want Jason to live the life of just a normal teenager. Uh, now, while his parentage of Jason, of course, has become apparent, uh, Jason wants to become this vigilante. Jason, now in his 20s, uh, wants to use his powers, wants to learn them because he knows them and is frankly mad at his parents of uh, Richard White and Lois Lane because they won't let him use them. Uh, and at the end of the day, the two try to bond, they try to work out their differences in the face of the greatest threat Superman has ever faced, which is Doomsday, who comes from space. Time. Okay. So, um, 
interesting pitches. Let's see what you guys can do with them. Five minutes. Uh, don't talk over each other, or I'll beat you with a stick. So here's what I want to say right away. Using Doomsday in the second movie, I think, is a complete waste. You've already seen Doomsday. You're setting yourself up for failure for using Doomsday in this context because he's the greatest threat Superman's ever seen. And so we're expecting Superman to either kill Doomsday or Superman to be killed by Doomsday. And either way, you're wasting Superman as a one-off or Doomsday as a one-off villain for a Superman movie that should really about to be the human elements where Superman either has to die or you're going to make Doomsday look really weak. Either way, we've already seen Doomsday. I don't think wasting him again would be a benefit, whereas we've never seen the Eradicator, which is a really cool idea for this android that Zod created, which ties into his past, ties into the origins of Krypton, and also gives him this uh, this threat that is on the level of him, but has a purpose of keeping Kryptonian bloodlines pure, which would have a reason for him to target his son, which I think is a more reasonable way to tie a villain into the plot than just alien that could kill Superman. See, but the thing is, I think the problem with Eradicator being your villain is that it is very similar to things we've seen before. In Superman 2, we have Zod and the Kryptonians, people on the power level of Superman from Krypton. Superman 3, we see Superman fight evil Superman, a version of Superman with the powers from Krypton. In Superman 4, we see him fight Nuclear Man, basically another version of Superman with the powers. Like, we've seen it over and over. As well, even Man of Steel, who does he fight? He fights Zod again. Sure, is Doomsday maybe the obvious choice? Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's the wrong choice, and it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Also, technically, Superman Returns does fit within the canon of the original four Superman movies right. as a technical no. sequel. So saying this is the second movie, no, it's technically not. It's the sixth. That's incorrect. It's actually the fourth movie for you because Superman 3 and 4 do not exist in this canon. It erased them, which is why I said the Eradicator is a creation of Superman. The reason why I think the Eradicator is a better fit is because we haven't seen this character. All Superman villains have, in some inherent way, a skill set or a power level similar to Superman. The reason why the Eradicator is a better fit is because we haven't seen him. We've seen Doomsday. Why do you want to waste Doomsday again? Doomsday is such a end-all, be-all threat that you want to, in the second movie of this new franchise, even if you want to, you can call it the fourth, it's not the fourth. Brandon Routh is not Christopher Reeve. Let's stop that right now. Uh, you want to waste Doomsday in the second movie in this way where we don't even really know who the Superman is. I feel like your movie would make sense as a sequel to my movie because my movie sets up a relationship between him and his son that he doesn't have. You're forcing this idea that like, oh, he and his son are estranged. They have never connected. So if you get my movie where there are awkwardly trying to figure out who each other are and Superman is trying to protect this kid from this threat from his past who has a reason to hurt him in a non-world-ending villain in which would be a change of pace for Superman, someone who he can spar with and fight with while having this suspicion of Krypton's been destroyed, so how are you a Kryptonian? What do you have about my past that I don't know? Is a more interesting take and approach to go with than going... Doomsday's here to end the world, and either Superman's going to die or he's going to kill Doomsday, and everyone's going to be disappointed that we use Doomsday again in another wasted context. See, but at the end of the day, A, you don't get to say Brandon Routh isn't Christopher Reeve when at the end of the day, the timeline that you've posed, Brandon Routh is playing the same character. He is playing sure. Christopher Reeve Superman as much as he's not the same actor. Second, you're pitching a movie that should have been made 17 years ago. This is a movie we are asked, being asked to pitch a movie right now. No, third, of all, th third of all, my threat is just as great as yours as well. I didn't get to bring up, uh, like you're saying that I'm not talking about like the dynamics. I'm just setting up 20 years later. 
I'm absolutely exploring the dynamics. I'm exploring the dynamics of a strained father-son relationship through the lens of being a person with powers, through, being, through the lens of being a person with abilities who has never been given the opportunity to truly learn what they should be, tries to do it on their own and does it wrong and like needs to be not necessarily fixed, but needs to be shown the correct way despite the strained relationship, despite this father-son conflict. Uh, the director that I have attached to this, because that was thing that we both did, uh, I picked Mike Flanagan, the director of Dr. Sleep, Haunting of Hill House and stuff. I think he can do this really well he can handle family father son family strained relationships as shown in dr sleep as shown in the haunting of Bell house and he can handle the horror and the terror that doomsday truly so, can bring to the role so let me explain why that's wrong uh while this is technically the same continuity and i'm adhering to the continuity i think the reason we're not being told to pitch this today they said pitch a sequel and i i think even if you made my movie today it fits better than yours because it picks up where we left off and has positive forward momentum into the universe jumping 20 years later to give us an adult son for an, for a relationship that we are supposed to believe is estranged or never happened i'd rather see it which is what my movie does my movie would give us all the things that i like about your pitch in a more realistic context and a villain that we've never seen to give us more than it's just we're not doing another Zod or another Doomsday or another Lex. We're giving you something new that still pertains into the universe. While also mine is directed by Gavin O'Connor, who with Warrior did action and strained brotherly and familiar relationships while giving you a lot of that energy, which is what I want. I want it to be a father-son dynamic like yours, but to do it in a way where we see a coming-of-age story, which is more important than wasting Doomsday again. Time. Okay. Uh, Cam, you get to close first. You have one minute when you start talking. Okay, Doomsday is the great Superman villain. You want to put him in a movie, you want to use him well, and you want to use him effectively. I think Mike Flanagan is the retro to do it because he can make him not only legitimately scary, make him a legitimate threat, but still make him very, very interesting. As for the part that Coho said about not covering that timeline, Mike Flanagan did the same thing in Doctor Sleep. There is a huge timeline between the events of The Shining and the events of Doctor Sleep, but we still get the effects of that father-son relationship. We get the effects of that strain. We see all of these relationships built through the present timeline and not through the flashbacks need to say at the time that you were at as well gavin o'connor every time gavin o'connor has gone out of the genre of his like sports movies feel good movies he has failed jane got a gun the accountant pride and glory these are all movies that people think are mediocre to bad even the way back it's a case of diminishing returns on the things he's already done where to quote one caleb coho the screenplay is underdeveloped and the ending leaves you feeling incomplete and like you've left in the middle of the third act you are bringing in a director who you yourself do not believe in his abilities currently in the present time. Thank you. <laughs> Fucking put that dick away. Jesus. All right. Go. You have one minute when you start talking. I'm bringing a director who has proven that he is capable of handling the things in the Superman movie that are important. I think he can nail this in a way that Mike Flanagan has no fucking idea what he's doing. If it's not horror, it's not cool, and Doomsday is not a horror villain. Doomsday is not the end-all be-all. Lex Luthor is. Doomsday is merely a weapon used to kill Superman in his last movie, and you're trying to set this up as the second movie. I think it's a complete waste to come back to Doomsday again so soon after B after BBS and fail it again in a way where it feels rushed and not important, whereas using someone new like the Eradicator, who has a direct tie to a young child who is not sure of what he's doing with his powers and have two conflicting father figures in a sense that have the same powers trying to teach one to be fully who he is and one to be a good person i think is a better idea i think my idea ties better into the themes and ideas of the original superman returns yours is just kind of pitching a totally new superman movie that has nothing to do with returns especially when you're talking about all oh, these themes of he doesn't know how to be a dad and he's lost in the universe um barely touched in returns not at all what a sequel would be mine is a positive forward momentum build on what we have seen and would develop that world better than yours who would waste doomsday for the third time time all right 
Cam just whipping out the quote from Coho's letterbox. To be fair, I, I was quoting what I thought about the writer, not the director, so that is a lie. But anyway, you do know who wrote the screenplay movie? Shh, it's not, not Gavin O'Connor. I like that movie a lot, by the way. I uh, like the way back too. You gave it three stars. Yeah, I like it. That's a that's a good review. All right, we good, judges. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to start. Um, I'm going to give this to Caleb. Uh, Cam uh, made it close towards the end. Um, it was a little t- it was a little too little too late is what I'm trying to say uh, from Cam's closing. I thought his closing was really strong when he pulled the um, all the Gavin O'Connor stuff about the movies that like his non like sport type stuff doesn't really work as well. Um, but I thought Coho's clear knowledge of Superman and the characters and everything really shined through in showing like his whole pitch of like Cam's movie might be a good sequel to Coho's own movie. I just thought overall Coho's pitch was cleaner and he was able to take it down to me why Cam's movie wouldn't work as a direct sequel to Returns, but maybe a sequel down the line. So uh, I go Coho. Nick, you're going next. Sure. Um, I'll just tell you about it. I'll tell you why. Uh, I went with Holtzman. Um, I didn't think I'd really care at all about the director picks. Um, and then Holtzman like, clearly showed me why his would be good and why Coho's would be not good. Um, that, that just sort of was a boost at the end. But all throughout it, um, I thought Holtzman had good points about, like, fighting the villain that would be the same as, like, Nuclear Man and the evil version of Superman that we saw in 3. And then I think Coho just got way too strung up on, like, which movie in the series it would be. Like, yes, there, it's the same Superman from the original. So is it the fourth movie? Is it the second one? Is it the sixth one? I don't really care. Um, I just liked uh, what Holtzman was pitching. Uh, I liked the relationship Coho was pitching between, like, the son, probably more than the relationship Holtzman was, was pitching. So, like, that point went to Coho, but overall, for me, Holtzman took it. Okay. Kirk, you get to decide this one. Where are you going and why? Okay. Uh, pitch questions are tough uh, because it gives you you got a lot of work. you got to get your pitch out. you got to defend it. you got to attack the other one within five minutes. Uh, so you got a lot of work to do. And I think they both did a good job of getting all that in. Uh, it was really close. Um, I think they both had good ideas. Um, for me, what it came down to is there was a lot, and because I had to find something, uh, there was a lot of talk about the villain, a lot of focus on who the villain would be. And I went with Coho because I think Coho uh, did a little bit of a better job of explaining how his villain actually would play into the story, uh, where Holtzman was just like, okay, it's going to be Doomsday because, you know, Doomsday is a good, tough villain. But, uh, Coho tied his villain into the story a lot more than uh, Holtzman did, so that's why I gave him the point. All right, so Coho wins the first point by a split decision. You got uh, the so... one you cared about. I got the one I came for. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, I wrote a I'm full getting... pitch thing here, and I didn't get through half of it in my opening. Minute. Oh no, no, that's the same thing. I got like halfway through my pitch. I'm like, shit. All right, guys, we're going to move on to the next category, which was drafted by Cameron. It's in the category of directors, specifically David Cronenberg. All right, the question is, uh, what is the most underrated David Cronenberg film? Uh, So, Cam, you get to kick this one off. You have one minute when you start talking. 
So David Cronenberg is one of the greatest directors to come out of Canada, uh, and he's best known for his unique style, his unique perspective on directing, and just going for what he wants to do, showing us something truly crazy and out there, and making it work despite how absolutely insane it is. Uh, and I think one movie that does not get enough credit from him when you talk to people who love David Cronenberg or casual film fans that does that in an amazing way is The Dead Zone. Uh, the Dead Zone is an adaptation of the Stephen King book, I believe, of the same name uh, about Christopher Walken, who is a man who has the ability basically to see the future but the ability to change it a little bit. And when he realizes that there's like these horrible crimes happening and that there's these things that will go horribly wrong in the world, tries to use this ability to change the future, to make everything right and to solve the things that are going on. I think it takes these themes that Cronenberg has built upon in his previous films of unique individuals who are down and out and elevates them to a new level uh, in a really, really interesting story with cool twists and turns. Uh, yeah. Time. Okay. We'll move over to Mr. Coho who has one minute to open his argument. It's not hard to be the best of anything uh, from Canada, but I think I'm not, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to pretend that David Cronenberg, uh, I am an expert to be, uh, but I will say that when I talked to people about David Cronenberg, most people would tell me the three best are like the fly, the dead zone and a history of violence. And I looked through his filmography and the one that intrigued me the most that I went down the rabbit hole on was one called maps to the stars. One that I hear no one talk about in Cronenberg, which is a movie that, about fame and the toxicity of Hollywood culture through different celebrities uh, in Hollywood. It involves death and murder and deceit and greed and deception through a family who's trying to infiltrate their way into the Hollywood space of fame. A lot of famous actors are mentioned and appear. Carrie Fisher plays herself in it. Julianne Moore is the lead with her husband, John Cusack, who's the psychiatrist. I think there's a lot of cool ideas about fame that Carnivore picked up over his years that he packs into this really twisted comedy that I think doesn't get enough credit with the cast that it has uh, overall. Time. Okay. I have seen one of these movies. I'm not going to say which one until the end. So uh, five minute freeform when one of you starts talking. So Maps to the, the biggest problem with Maps to the Stars is that it goes against everything that makes Cronenberg great. It is arguably, or maybe inarguably, his safest movie. It is a safe tale about a washed-up Hollywood actress trying to make her way through Hollywood while being usurped by younger people, dealing with a strained relationship with her husband. It's a movie we've seen literally thousands of times before. Uh, it's carried by an okay performance from Julianne Moore. She's really not that fantastic in it. John Cusack is horribly miscast in his part, should not be in it, as well saying that The Dead Zone is one of the five most, one of the three most named Cronenberg movies is insane. When you have The Fly, Videodrome, Eastern Promises, Dead Ringers, A History of Violence, and more to go above The Dead Zone. Which proves why yours is not that underrated, because when I talked to Cronenberg people, they said the dead zone second, third, before any of those. And that should tell you that when it comes to the canon of Cronenberg, he's made many great movies, many worth talking about. And the dead zone, one of the ones that come up, it's really not that underrated. I think most people talk about walking and the cool concepts in it. I don't think it really matches the argument that we're fighting. Whereas when you ask people about Cronenberg, they don't talk about Maps to the Stars that much. Not and because like you can good. argue this because... You can argue that it's safe and not good, but I, I mean, critically, it did it did well. Its Metacritic score is high. I think the reason why it's it's critically liked, it's a liked movie. I think the reason why it's not talked about in Cronenberg as much 
is because it gets buried under the weight of everything else that he has done. But I think Maps of the Stars is his swan song. It's his, this is my retrospective on all my ideas about Hollywood and filmmaking and careers. And when directors come out and do that, it usually, it typically turns out really well. And I think Quarterberg really knocks it out of the park with this cast. I think you're wrong when you say John Cusack's miscast. I think John Cusack is just doing something different than you would see in that part. It's an atypical attempt to approach that part. And I think he does it well. I think Julianne Moore is always the great star. And obviously it's Robert Pattinson giving a great performance. I think in the whole Pattinson. He gives a good performance, though. That's the thing. And they said Robert Pattinson's the reason they ended up making the movie was his casting. So I'm just saying, Maps of the Stars, I think, on the whole, delivers on the premise that it sets out to do. It might not be flashy like the rest of them, but it sets out to what it does. See, but the thing is, I'm not arguing whether or not it's flashy. I'm arguing it's not Cronenberg. It's not his style. Again, you keep saying these Cronenberg people I've talked to. I don't believe that you've talked to any Cronenberg people. I have indeed. The only two people in this community that have watched all those movies are me and Dylan, and you didn't talk to me. Um, uh, that means I talked to Dylan. Maps Sorry, you're not the all be all. The reason Maps of the Stars falls down in this canon is not because people think it's underrated. It's because people don't like it. People think it's aggressively mediocre middle of the road. It has an average of, I think, 3.2 on Letterboxd. It has like a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. Genuinely disregarded. People didn't care. People thought, oh, man, Julianne Moore might get an Oscar nomination for this movie. And then that didn't happen because she didn't deserve one. Also, Julianne Moore playing a washed-up actress in Hollywood in the year 2014. That's a stretch for Julianne Moore to play. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Mia Wasikowska undercuts the movie with a stale, boring performance akin to hers in Alice in Wonderland. Like, there's better movies starring Julianne Moore and Mia Wasikowska together. This isn't even the best of those. Right, and if we were arguing, though, sure, but we're arguing in the canon of the most underrated Cronenberg, and again, we keep going back to this point. When you look at the most popular, if you sort on most popular IMDb, The Dead Zone comes out in the top five. In the top five. Like, The Dead Zone's not an underrated. I think it's underrated to people who don't know who Cronenberg is, but I think if you're going to into the canon of Cronenberg, and that's that's the thing, if you're going into the canon of Cronenberg, it's a top-tier Cronenberg, and that's the thing. And you can argue mine is bad, but it has almost identically the same IMDb score as yours. So it's not a bad movie. It's viewed yeah. as good as your movie. It's just Cronenberg Cronenberg and his fans have their favorites of horror. And we're not arguing most Cronenberg movie. We're not arguing best. We're arguing most underrated. And I think this one gets brushed aside because it's not traditionally horror or traditionally off-putting. It's just this Cronenberg movie where he's talking about his experiences in Hollywood. And I think at the end, it's not what you expect from Cronenberg. It's not what you necessarily want from Cronenberg. But he delivered a story he wanted and it pays off and it's good. It's a good story that I think no one really gives enough credit. I don't think people disregard it because it's not the weird horror vibe Cronenberg. Because Cronenberg has proven he can do stuff that isn't horror really well. Eastern Promises is magnificent. A History of Violence, one of the best DC movies ever made. Like, he can do drama. He can do Down to Earth. Just Maps of the Stars isn't it. As well, most underrated. Sure, maybe within Cronenberg fans, the Dead Zone Zone might come up higher. But that's because people who've watched all his movies agree that it's maybe one of the better ones. But amongst the general populace... People don't really know the Dead Zone. They don't really know. They don't really know Maps of the Stars either. Maps of the Stars is cookie cutter. It's formulaic. It doesn't do much great. The performances all should be a lot better than they are. They could not get their first choice for casting and lost their first choices. The Julianne Dead Zone Moore was his a first great choice. performance from Christopher Walken. Has an incredible performance from Martin Sheen. Like the the twists and turns that it takes, it weaves an interesting story that keeps you engaged, which you cannot say for Maps of the Stars. You literally just said that the general public would know Maps of the Stars less than the Dead Zone. I guarantee the general public would know it more. Julianne Moore was his first choice of the but partners. It's been attached to 2005. It is underrated. It's more uh, underrated than yours. Yeah. All right. Uh, Coho, you're going to go first. Uh, he shot himself. Minute. Sorry. I thought you, I thought you said it. Sorry. Oh, my bad. I jumped the gun. My apologies. Himself. You go ahead. 
He shot himself in the foot because he said it just then. Fans would know the dead zone, or people who weren't fans would know the dead zone more than Maps of the Stars. Maps of the Stars is more underrated by Cronenberg fans and general public because the dead zone is still, regardless how you cut it, in the top three to five spots of Cronenberg movies that people know off the top of their head. It is a well-regarded, well-known movie, and Maps of the Stars, critically speaking, is equally paired but less talked about. You can He can argue it's miscast, but Julianne Moore was the pick from 2005, has been with the project as Cronenberg has wanted to make that movie forever. And when he made it, it came out, it was a success, people liked it, and at the end of the day, it's different. It's different. And that's why Cam is saying it's bad, because it's not the creepy horror stuff. It's not the off-putting Eastern promises a history of violence vibes. It's him making a movie that he wanted to do. And it's one that he wanted to do where he talks about all of his ideas about fame, about Hollywood, about these disgusting people who don't want, who think other people's validation is more important than their own self-validation. I think that's what sets Maps of the Stars apart from something like The Dead Zone, which is just another run-of-the-mill horror thing from Cronenberg. It's the same thing I've seen before. Maps of the Stars, underrated by um, everyone. All right. Cameron, one minute when you start talking. So I think the biggest problem with your argument is you are conflating the terms lesser known with more underrated. For something to be underrated, it doesn't have to just be the more obscure movie. It has to be the better movie that comes out on top in spite of how unknown it is. Sure, have a few more people maybe heard of The Dead Zone than that? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean it's less underrated. It just means that people like it more. That's all that it is. It's a better movie. Also, you're blatantly lying when you say Julianne Moore was the first choice for the project. Rachel, Rachel Weiss was the initial choice for the project but had to leave due to scheduling conflicts. The film, like, it's not just that it's not horror because that's not all that Cronenberg can do. Cronenberg has proven he can do drama. He can do family dynamics. He can do all of these things really, really well, but he is doing something out of his range, out of his style, telling the story of an older aging woman in Hollywood, telling a story that is frankly not his to tell, and he's failing because he does not have the perspective necessary. It is a, it is a bad movie. The reason it's lesser known and lesser well-regarded amongst Cronenberg fans and everyone alike is because they don't care for it because it's not good time all right then i'm to be trivia lied to me by the way cam because it says right here that uh she's attached to the, the original choices she said she was here since 2004 that's why i brought it up but that's fair i am to be never lies cam don't you know that okay are we good judges yeah, yeah. kirk have you seen either of these um, I haven't seen I Maps of the Stars. I oh. saw Dead Zone a lot. I haven't seen Dead Zone in years. I've never seen Dead Zone. Saw. I've never seen Dead Zone. I've seen Maps of the Stars. It's fucking awful. Uh, <laughs> and I'll get into my thoughts on that in a minute. Uh, Kirk, you get to lead this one off since you had to uh, decide the last one. Underrated questions are another one. This is a minefield. It's tough to fight. Um, it usually devolves into what is good and what is bad and it kind of did here I heard a lot about quality of the movie like we got stuck on julian Moore, and that really has nothing to do with whether or not it's underrated um i think one person did a better job of staying on track and focusing and telling the story of why their movie is more underrated and that was coho um you know he talked about the reasons specifically why it was cronenberg it was something different and cam came back on that like i said i think coho stayed on that track where cam was a lot more focused on just the quality of the movie itself Okay, um, 
as I said, I've seen Maps of the Stars. Uh, I don't think either of these people have because the movie. No. One they, of the like three that are eligible for Warzone that I didn't watch and I didn't want to. For the movie they were saying that is this movie is not the movie that it is. When co-hosts like, it's not the like, uh, like gross weird one like Eastern Promises. I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> it actually really so. is, but it's not. Yeah, it's weird. Um, man, maybe. Uh, I, well, this is why we write things down. Kirk actually kind of gives me go, but I did write Cameron on my board, so that's what I have to go with. Um, ultimately, to me, underrated is kind of what Cam was pitching of like the. It's not as much about the like what like people might know the title, the Dead Zone, but it's who's actually seen it and the quality of the movie. And so he might he convinced me the fact that more people might have heard of the dead zone but overall no one has heard of maps to the stars and it's bad and the dead zone even though a few people have actually like heard of it it's the way better film and it doesn't get talked about as much as it should in the lexicon of cronenberg so i went with cam um nick you get to go and decide this one well my vote matters so that means i have a second to say some things because you have to wait for me um, first of all, thank you for not asking if I've seen these, Tim. These are two of my favorite movies. Um, Don't lie. Okay, never seen them. Never heard of them. Um, Is the only Cronenberg movie you've seen in History of Violence? Maybe. I, I'd have to go back and look. No, I've seen two. I've seen Eastern Promises. Never mind. <laughs> um, so, number two. Uh, I think this community in general is very out of touch with reality, and I'd like to remind us all that. Like, if you walk down the street and say, hey, you like David Cronenberg, that person's probably going to be like, who the fuck are you talking about? Um, the general populace might know the dead. Just I don't. I don't think that's true. Um, <laughs> that being said, um, third, third point. Um, I'd love to know who these people cohort is talking to are. Uh, he said, like I was talking to people, and they said the dead zone. I was talking to people. They said I'm the sexiest man alive. So like. <laughs> That's cool. Well, say, I called that out. <laughs> you and you did, and that's why I gave you the point. And I wrote your name like this. Oh wow! Look at it. You didn't even talk to anybody, Co. You're fucking right, but this is debate. Shut the fuck up, Cam. All right, so two Thanks, split, Kirk. two split decisions. Uh, this is this is interesting. All right, we're gonna move on to the next I question. I, I had, I, I was the one I had no shot in hell winning. Well, when I saw really, the question, I was you, you had a shot. Not a question I was ready for in this category. I, I did my best, but that was like I almost fucking one of the ones I hadn't seen. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, we're gonna move on to the next question, which is bound to be a saucy one. Uh, it's in the category of actors and actresses drafted by Mr. Coho, uh, specifically Andrew Garfield films. So the question is. What is the best acting performance in a scene from Andrew Garfield in a non-fandom film? So, no Spider-Man catching people and tearing up and making me weep for weeks since December 17th. Uh, So, Coho, you get to start this one. You have one minute when you start talking. I think Andrew Garfield is one of the most talented actors working in Hollywood today. He has a very, very intense, powerful range that he gives that most people don't really like realize because he's just Spider-Man or to most people, the third Spider-Man. Um, and I think that one of his most overlooked performances where he is doing a lot of really great work is in Martin Scorsese's silence um, through that entire film. He is giving this really understated, 
powerful moving performance about faith and it all culminates in the scene where he has to renounce his faith in order to save lives and Liam Neeson his mentor is urging him it's just a sign it's it's just a it's just a formality just do this and you can save everyone else and he says no words in this scene, he lets the entire emotion of his performance in his body language, in his face, as he gets closer to stepping on this picture of Jesus until finally he does it and crumples to the ground and is just a husk of himself on the ground as these people who have their heads buried in the ground are there. I think Garfield says everything with saying nothing in the scene. Time. All right, we'll move over to Cameron, who has one minute when he starts talking. So when it comes to Andrew Garfield's best performance, it was very clear to me immediately that the only correct choice and the only correct scene was Eduardo Saverin getting cut out of the company and having his shares diluted in the social network. Garfield does something incredible in this role and in the scene where he takes Eduardo Saverin, who if you've ever seen video of Eduardo Saverin, is one of the least charismatic, uninteresting individuals. And that's compared to Mark Zuckerberg, who is also in that category, and makes him not just charismatic, not just interesting, but you deeply care. You take his side. You support him. You believe in him. He gives so much emotion in this one small scene, in this one scene that is so basic, so boring, so real. It is just a business discussion in all matter of actuality. It is a discussion about stocks intercut with footage of a legal proceeding. And he gives this beautiful performance full of both silent rage, despair, and just absolute cutthroat vengeance in his eyes and in his heart. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I'll get into things about Garfield and silence later. I see my time. All right. Time. Uh, surprise, Tick, Tick, Boom didn't come up. I was a little shocked. Sure, we both thought about it. <laughs> I, I was a little shocked given the present company. But, hey, I love both these movies, so I'm game for it. Five-minute free form and one of you starts talking. Okay, let's go ahead and get this out of the way. Your scene is great because Aaron Sorkin is one of the greatest screenwriters to ever live and just wrote material that dances off the page. Dylan O'Brien gave you the same level performance in a TikTok recreation during COVID. It's not. It's a scene that anyone can come in and do. Garfield just comes in and acting over the top of coming in and just, I'm not coming back for 20%. I'm coming back for everything and just is trembling and shaking and just doing his thing. I think the thing that's more impressive, any actor can come in and just yell at Jesse Eisenberg. It's not hard to do. Cody could do it. Like anyone coming in, just yell at Jesse Eisenberg about stocks and business and be and be mad. But I think what he does in silence is something transformative. It's soulful. It's deep. He has no lines of dialogue. And he tells you everything he's feeling in this moment, in this one small act that will change his life forever and change him and rock him to his core. I think Garfield is doing everything as an actor that makes you an impressive performance, an impressive actor where he uses every asset but his voice to tell you how he feels. See, the thing is, I think you can't make the argument that Garfield is heavily assisted by Sorkin when when Garfield in silence is working on Martin Scorsese dialogue, one of the greatest writers, one of the greatest directors of not all a great, time. Not a great writer, but a good director. I'm sorry, the man has won several Oscars and his movies are critically for, regarded. He's, he's won a Oscar for directing, calm down, great writer As well, Garfield's performance in Silence, sure, you can say he doesn't say anything, he conveys it all with his body. At the end of the day, we don't really get that much of a good view of his body, that much of a good yes, view of do. his face in the scene. No, it is so many It is so many wide shots, it is so many scenes with his head you didn't down, watch my scene. covering his face. You can't see his facial expression for half of it. The dramatic tension of the scene is undercut by the constant cutaways to the bodies hanging around him, to the statue on the floor, to the picture of Jesus on the floor, to the weird voiceover from Jesus that takes up 50% of the scene that you're talking about and takes away from Rodriguez's journey. 
We're not arguing the best script or the best scene. That's the thing you keep doing. You're going, oh, you didn't watch. You didn't watch it. The whole movie, the entire scene is framed on what his body is doing. I don't need to see his face. I in watched this brightly the scene. lit. No, you didn't because his face is not. I sent the scene to the chat and showed you that claim that. His face. It doesn't need to be brightly lit. It doesn't need to be a shining face of him right under an office light, moving his hands like an Italian man. He's literally his body movement. You see his figure standing there, frail, broken from everything he's gone through. And you get a close-up of his face where he is destroyed as Liam Neeson whispers in his ear. Here's the thing. You can say he has help from all these different things. All those things fall completely away to the argument of what scene has his best performance. And the performance that Andrew Garfield is giving in this scene is way more impressive than yours where he is spouting percentages and spitting in a performance that any other actor could do. Dylan O'Brien could do it, and he did do it, in fact, almost better than him without well, the fancy... Yes, he did. Right almost now. better than him. Almost better than him on a TikTok camera without David Cronenberg's or uh, whatever, Jeff Cronenberg's cinematography. What I'm saying is his silence gives you more with Garfield's talents than yours. See, but the thing is, I think saying that he can spout percentages and do that. Do you know how boring stocks are? Do you know how boring founding a company is? Do you know how boring business proceedings are? And, and Sorkin makes it great. Let me speak, please. Let me speak. I gave you a full like minute and a half. He takes this scene. Okay. He takes the scene about percentages, the scene about legal proceedings, and turns it into this visceral rage, this pain, this anger. Makes it interesting. Makes you care about it. Makes you care about the smallest numbers of 0.03% or whatever the number is. The single look in the courtroom where he looks over his shoulder at Zuckerberg and says, I was your only friend. The only moment in that scene where he makes any eye contact, any attempt to look at Zuckerberg is heartbreaking, is devastating. And you know why? It's because you can see the emotion in his eyes. You can see it in his face. When you can say Garfield is standing there, Garfield is standing there. His head is down. His hair is in his eyes. His hair is covering his face. You can't see his face for most of it. The lighting is bad. And also, One it's a minute. lot easier to act heartbroken and in pain when you literally have actors tied up, hanging upside down, being legitimately tortured around you instead of having to sit next to Justin Timberlake and carry him through a scene. Oh, no, 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 no. You have to act angry. And you have Justin Timberlake and Jesse Eisenberg in the scene. Don't come talking to me about how people hanging upside down makes your scene easier. What you're arguing is he's making percentages sound great. Sorkin makes percentages sound great. Andrew Garfield's not doing spe anything specifically special in that entire performance. He is raising his voice and yelling. In fact, you just convinced me that Eisenberg is better in the same scene with no dialogue. Eisenberg's giving the better performance, looking at him and not looking at him. Then Garfield is yelling and raising his voice and saying, I'm coming back for everything. I'm serious when I say Dylan O'Brien is as good in a TikTok. Like, I'm just you're saying. really not, anyone, and I know you're He not. is. He is. And anyone could do that part. The thing is, I don't buy that anyone could come into silence and do what Andrew Garfield does. You say there's bad lighting on his face. That's no, not true. You, that's not true. You see thing. his face. You see him when he gets on in one foot. Time. It's devastating. Devastating. Strike it from the record. Cameron. One minute when you start talking. All right, I go first. Listen, at the end of the day, I understand the argument that an actor does not need to speak to give a great performance, but an actor doesn't need to be, does need to be present. We do need to be able to see what he's doing. We need to be able to take in his performance and his acting to understand how great it is. In silence, his performance is constantly undercut by the fact that the scene really doesn't focus on him. It spends more time focusing on the picture of Jesus on the ground to the point where of the clip that we were given for the scene, 
more than 50% of it is spent on that statue. Half of it is spent wide shots seeing more tortured bodies than him. You get about 10 seconds of him shaking and trembling. You also don't get to say that Eduardo Saverin is shaking and trembling while yelling about figures when shaking and trembling is the main argument you're making for your performance. Like, they're the same thing from the same actor. He is acting off of actors with no charisma, who are giving him nothing to work off of, who say nothing to him, who have the acting abilities of one Justin Timberlake, is acting through legal proceedings, through the most boring things, taking the most boring individual, making you care about him, making you feel for him, making you feel his rage, his anger, his sadness, all in just a few sentences, in a few lines, bringing tears to his eyes. All right, Koho, one minute when you start talking. I'm going to reiterate, reiterate what I said. He, My scene is not at all what Cam is describing. You get a lot of Garfield in that scene. You get full body shots. You get a full face shot of him destroyed. Just eyes that are telling you so much pain about what it is. He has to renounce who he is. And yes, you get a long piece of the thing of, of the foot and him talking to the guy on the foot, the guy on the foot talking to him. But at the end of the day, the less Garfield in it, he gives me more than what he's doing in the social network. Because what he does in the social network is being lifted by Sorkin dialogue. A Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score. Everything else about that movie is doing more than what Garfield is in that moment. If you want to talk about all oh, the bodies are giving help, you don't see the bodies more than two seconds. You have an entire casting crew of people around him who are out acting, out technically performing him that make that scene great. That entire scene is all Garfield. Liam Neeson is whispering and he's doing fine. You see the body, you barely see the bodies underground. What you see is Garfield's frail body in full view as it drops to one knee and you realize his whole principles are destroyed. Garfield's better in silence. Time. Fuck. Okay. Someone didn't watch the scene I sent to the chat. To ask I did watch the scene in this chat twice. So no, the argument you didn't is watch over. It. You shush. We're gonna argue about this for like five days. Oh, one hundred percent. I love bold, especially because I got your first pick in your match. Shush. Right? Enough. I'm think. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. Shush. My first pick. Shut up. <laughs> um. Nick's like ready to go, and I'm. Kirk, are you ready to go too? Am I just wasting everyone's time? I'm ready. Take your time. Obnoxiously <sighs> again, too. You what? I like took a long time to write the person's name down in really long letters. So. Clearly, this wasn't. Oh shit, clearly, this wasn't as close. Else. No, it was. It, it wasn't easy. Okay. It wasn't easy for me. This is, this is the closest one so far, I think. Yeah, this is... I I really could go either way on this. And I, I yeah. feel like we say that a lot, but this is no joke. Okay, I'm ready. Nick, you get to go first. Okay, I found this quite easy, so my apologies if I hurt anyone's feelings. <laughs> uh, so, where did I want to start? Basically... Not anyone can do it because we saw Coho try to do it and it wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that being said, the Dylan O'Brien point was shockingly like a good point because I've actually seen that video and I was just kind of like, okay, not the worst thing to bring up. And then I the 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 point that really like sealed the deal for me was when Pol or 
uh, Holson said, like, it's easy because, you know, he's surrounded by, like, people. So, like, of course it's easy to react to stuff like that. And then Coho countered with, like, okay, you're standing in a room with Justin Timberlake and Jesse Eisenberg. Like, of course you can act, like, mad, disappointed, like, whatever, blah, blah. So I gave it to Coho. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Uh, Kirk. Yeah, uh, like I said, this was the closest one. I think they both made some really solid points. Um, ultimately, I also went with Coho. I'm sorry, Holtzman. I don't mean to keep – don't take it personally. I'm going to get you. Um, but I think the thing is that uh, kind of like what Nick said, I think Coho made the best argument of Andrew had, uh, or Garfield had the most help in social network. Um, Holtzman had a chance to argue – you know, when Coho brought up Sorkin uh, – Scorsese, you know, he brought up Scorsese's script. If he had brought up Scorsese's direction, that would have been a much better takedown. Um, but, you know, he was talking about the music, you know, Coho brought the music and the script and who was around him. I think he made a better argument that where where Garfield, you know, did this on his own and, um, you know, Holtzman didn't shoot that down as well as Coho did opposite. So I went with Coho on that one. Yeah, this is uh, my vote doesn't count, but I'm going to talk anyway. Uh, these are easily, these were. <sighs> These are two of my favorite scenes and two of my favorite movies, so this was really hard for me. Um, I I had to honestly go back to when Nick and I debated each other. We had a question that was the best performance in a Scorsese movie. And Nick picked um, Leo and Wolf, and I picked Garfield in Silence. And one of the things that I said in my argument against Nick, and I vividly remember it, and I think it's the reason I won the point, was that exactly what Kirk said. I said that the only reason Leo is good in those like comedy sequences is not because Leo's a good comedic actor. It's because Scorsese's direction is doing so much to push Leo forward. And so when Coho brought up the, it's not Garfield, it's Sorkin's writing and the score and everything coming together to make that moment great that kind of won it for me in the same way. So I did go end up going with Caleb, but it was really close. A lot of the stuff Cam said about um, the, it focusing on the, the Jesus face and everything is, is very true. And Cam had a lot of great points. It was very close for me. I, yeah. So there's no one picked tax average. So. I, I was I shocked Holtzman did take hacks up. I, here's the thing. The exact points that I made against Silence are the same problem with his best acting scene in Hacksaw Ridge, which has helped me get one more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's fair. Um, okay, so we are... Uh, Koho is up two to one. Um, Cam does need to hit this. Fourth question in order to send it to the bonus round. If Koho hits this, we will uh, end the match. So the question was drafted by Cam in the category of YA, specifically the Divergent series, everyone's favorite. Uh, the question is, who is the dumbest character in a Divergent movie? Uh, so Cam, you get to kick this one off. You have one minute when you start talking. So I think when we're talking about someone being dumb, we have to talk about someone who 
who really is making the wrong decisions at every possible turn or not making decisions that could benefit them. Someone who is ignorant, someone who is willfully not paying attention, and someone who is working honestly towards their own detriment. And that is why I chose Christina uh, from the Divergent series. Uh, Christina spends the entirety of Insurgent, or not the entirety, but a large portion of Insurgent, hearing Triss blatantly lie badly about having killed Will and believes her because she's not smart enough to think that maybe her best friend might not be telling her the truth. Not only that, she doesn't seem to understand the concept that her boyfriend, like every other Dauntless, including herself, was brainwashed into murdering people and that Triss's only option was to do so, holding it against her and never forgiving her until all of a sudden she does for no apparent reason with no character development, no growth. When she's in training in Dauntless, she constantly challenges the leaders. She ends up getting in horrible, horrible positions where they're literally trying to murder her. She constantly makes the wrong judgment choices every turn left and right, and it's ridiculous. Time. Okay. Move over to Coho. You have one minute when you start talking. Let's not get cute or fancy with definitions. Dumbest means someone who is an absolute fucking detriment to every movie or scene that they are in, a stain on a franchise, someone who actively is uninteresting, unimportant, and legitimately does not make any sense. And Caleb is the only answer to this question. He is a disgrace to the name Caleb. Ansel Elgort's entire character here it serves no purpose to Triss's arc because Triss can't even make heads or tails of his motive when he sides with Janine. At the end of the day, that's like the most defining thing he does is he he sides with Janine and the bad guys, which ends up not working out because he sides with the bad guys and they lose. And they still, he still gets a dumbass second chance when they let, when they take him out of the execution and he gets to be a part of that Oscar-winning Allegiant film and does nothing in it. Caleb, through the entire series, serves no point, no function, except to try and create bullshit family drama that doesn't make any sense for what his own motives would be in the story at all. Time. Okay. You guys have five minute freeform when one of you starts talking. So saying that he does nothing in a legion is blatantly incorrect. He's smart enough and intelligent enough to warn four, warn four of the upcoming conflict in Chicago so that he can do something about it and help about it. He's smart enough to go into the town and try to help solve the problem, try to help inoculate it, try to help get into the facility and do stuff. He's also smart enough at the end of the film to organize the detonation of the holographic wall to reveal the Bureau to everyone else. He makes confident, competent decisions throughout that entire movie, but you're ignoring it because you don't like the character. No. We're arguing no. dumbest, not worst for the franchise. And I'm going to prove my point off your definition. He does all of that and then betrays all of it by siding with Janine. He literally goes with Janine and it makes no sense for any of what the shit of you the, just said. Everything up. I said was when Janine was alive in the last two movies and what not I'm just telling, from Allegiant. What I'm telling you is throughout the entire series, this man actively shoots himself in the foot. Why would he go against his sister? Guess what? His sister and the own writers can't answer that question for you. The writer of Divergent doesn't know. It's literally just, we need drama to be created. When the movies can't justify why he would betray his own family and go against every action, would go against warning for, would go against warning the Bureau, and he would be a bad guy, it's lazy writing, plotless character. It's a character who doesn't need to exist except that every nuclear family dynamic has a son and a daughter, and they have nothing to do with this character. Your character... Hold, hold on, let me just finish with your character real quick. I'll just say, your character is not dumb, just unimportant. At the end of the day, the Divergent sequels don't introduce anyone important enough for me to care about anyone else's motives. Caleb is too impressive. the first Caleb, movie, dingbat. What I'm telling you is, well, the sequels are more important for her. What I'm telling you is through the three movies, what I'm telling you is through the three movies, this character does nothing of, of note or importance enough for me to question her sanity like you are saying. 
I'm sorry. Okay. First of all, his decision to decide with erudite isn't one of stupidity. It's one of self-preservation. We see several characters throughout the series make those choices. And honestly, most of the time they work out. I'm sorry that the why would he do this comes down to him putting himself in one of the greatest positions for if this goes wrong. And then Triss literally comes back from the dead with plot armor that any other fictional character dreams that they could have. Triss dies. His plan works. They do it. And then she comes back from the grave. She is resurrected because now Divergence can do that apparently in the second movie. How was he supposed to know that? You weren't. Nobody in the audience was. You don't get to say he's stupid for not being able to predict the most ridiculous, insane thing. He knows how to play the game. He knows how to make the choices that will advance him. Because at the end of the day, if he doesn't make these choices, he's nothing. He's nobody. He's nowhere. He is basically just the more neutral version of Peter, who many people think is the smartest character in the series who plays the game correctly. What game are we playing? There's no game to be set up here, Cam. You're trying to give more importance to what's going on than there actually is. You're creating narratives that don't matter. Proceedings of the three movies. What you're saying right now is Triss is supposed to be the chosen one, right? Triss is the one who, in that one meeting, breaks the rules as a divergent and gets to pick something that is against everything and gets to go off. And that would be special. And that's your sister. So wouldn't you think she would be someone special to follow for the entire series? His first move in the entire series is dumb in a logical sense that you set up. So if we're going to play your game right now, my character is the logical correct answer to your character. And you can't even what defend it. You, go, oh, plot. Can you can you say, explain? you can say, you can say plot armor when he's like, oh, I'm going to side with, I can side with Janine. I can side, I can side with Janine after seeing my sister is extremely special because of self-preservation. But Triss is constantly one-upping Janine in these movies, constantly so being if, the most important have, character. If in these you movies. have the choice between a literal army of brainwashed super soldiers led by the smartest people in your society, or a 14-year-old girl with an edgy boyfriend who has tattoos and somewhat of a discernible personality compared to everyone else, he made the correct decision. He brainwashed soldiers that are brainwashed soldiers that are so incompetent that they are never threatening at all in the series and do they nothing. Kill people. How are they not? Nameless people that may, that mean nothing? I'm sorry, they have Will, no real Will is an important character, going back to the crux of my argument. Is Will is an important character that is killed, and Christina is so willfully ignorant, refusing to make a decision, refusing to admit the truth, that she lies not only to us, to Triss, to herself, believing Triss's you lies and going this. along with them. She makes the wrong choices at every turn during her training, questioning the authority, getting herself hung over the edge of a chasm, getting herself put in a position where they will throw knives at each other, nearly kick her out of everything. She keeps making decisions that either do nothing, or she doesn't make any decisions but she's working with four and allegiant with the bureau four is the one who figures out that everything is going wrong and that they're lying to her and she doesn't even believe him until he has to lay it out step by step by step even though it's obvious because you're watching them literally like hurt and torture children if you're going to use the point that self-preservation is a smart decision, then you have to understand that your character is doing the same thing when she is staying with the fucking chosen one. She made the right call because she's on the right side of history with the good she guys. So if we're going to make an argument here, you friend. have to be right or wrong. You can't um, be both. Both. Strike it from the record. Uh, Coho, you have one minute to close when you start talking. At the end of the day, he can say self-preservation, but it still doesn't make sense that he would try and make a self-preservation play when he has seen how special his sister is in that selection ceremony, that she can literally break the rules of their society and succeed. There is already so many moments leading up where 
his principles, his morals are completely compromised by him joining the bad guys. And it comes out of nowhere. There's no story setup. There's no critical setup for this character to do anything. It's a stupid usage of the character. And he is stupid for doing any of it because it doesn't make sense as to anything he does. At the end of the day, Cam picked a character who at the end of the day supports the main character blindly and ends up helping her. And at the end of the day, saves her ass because the main character is stupid. The entire series is stupid. But when we are ranking the levels of moronic people in this moronic fucking series, the one who takes the cake is Ansel fucking Elgort's Caleb, who through a series of plotless and stupid stuff that doesn't make any sense, takes the cake when he does stuff that seems even stupider in a context of a stupid fucking series. Time. All right. Cam, one minute when you start talking. Again, you can argue that Caleb is the worst character in Divergent any day of the week. That's not the question. The question is stupid. Is you're saying that Christina blindly following and trusting in the chosen one because of because of reasons. You're saying blind faith with no decision making or logic is smart. That's insane. That's one of the dumbest things you can do. And it's the reason Christina's stupid. She makes no decisions for herself. She only listens to other people, lets other people lie to her, lets other people manipulate her. Caleb is at least, has at least the forethought to make decisions. He has the forethought to understand things. He has character actions. He does things. He makes choices. He makes choices with Triss in the third movie. And again, you keep saying the selection ceremony. What, what are you talking about? Him seeing she's special. Him seeing her cut her hand and bleed on rocks. Especially because he left first. He was the first person to make the decision to go against his family go somewhere else she didn't do anything special she followed in his footsteps if anything else making him the person who led her there making him the person who gives her the power to be the chosen one his decision to side with erudite and stupidity everyone in erudite got tricked so all the smartest minds are stupid including christina uh, and caleb and caleb striking from the record uh okay <clears throat> I'm going first. You're going first? I thought I was going first this time. I went last last time. Oh, you did? Okay. I'm going with Cameron Holtzman. Uh, like Coho with the Superman stuff to me, Cameron's knowledge on Divergent is weirdly disgusting. Um, and he kind of... Superman Returns, by the way. I forgot to say that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, I like Superman Returns. Um, he, he knows a lot about uh, these characters, clearly, and I don't think Coho does <laughs> because uh, I, I Cam was able to just completely tear down why if the question was worst character, Coho might have a, a, a game at this. But with dumbest, stupidest, I thought Cam's closing was really smart pulling that. You just said she blindly. Yeah, you just made my point for me. And here's all the reasons why Caleb actually does some smart things so i vote cam nick you go next sure um <clears throat> they both at one point said their character was dumb for like joining the side they joined which would mean they like contradicted each other and i kind of forget how now but i remember being like Did you just say the other thing uh on top of that I don't, maybe it's not fair because I've seen these movies a billion times, much to my dismay. But like, Cameron was like, oh, he does this smart thing and this smart thing and this smart thing and this smart thing. And then Coho was like, and then he joins Janine. And I was like, no, that happened a long time ago. Overall, Cameron just gave, Cameron didn't even convince me that like, um, 
Christina was all that dumb, like maybe a little bit dumb, but like he just convinced me that Caleb was actually like really smart. Uh, so the differential levels, I was going to make it all dramatic, but I kind of gave it away. You can't, can't see it yet. Can't see it yet. Oh, who is it? Oh, who is it? <laughs> Damn. Yeah. I get it. You wrote it small this time. All right. So Cam wins the point, but Kirk, uh, where would you have gone? In life? Yeah, I'm the exact opposite, Nick. I saw one Divergent movie and I kind of purged <laughs> it from my brain as soon as I walked out of the theater. So I only had their context of what I was hearing to go on. And it sucked because at the beginning they were like, arguing two different things like Holtzman's arguing you know who was dumb within the context of the movie and Coho is kind of like talking about like who was dumb as a character you know looking at the outside in um, but I think Holtzman did a really good job of like putting that together and arguing both sides and um, so I also went with Holtzman all right, I've seen means... all these movies once, and I never wish to watch. I them wrote again. two notes during Coho's closing. They were "blind faith, smart question mark," and "she bled on rocks." <laughs> <laughs> um, this does mean we are going to move on to the bonus question. So here's how this is going to work. Uh, I have randomized the worlds of fan, dumb, and war zone, and uh, we are going to get a category out of that. I got a category out of that and a question out of that. So I'm going to say the question. I am then going to repeat the question. After I have repeated it and said it the second time, you guys may then say your answer. When you have an answer, say it out loud. Do not wait for somebody else to answer. Don't be a pest. Just say your answer. Whoever is uh, says their answer first will be going first. Each of you will get 45 seconds uh, followed by your opponent's 45 seconds back to 30 seconds followed by your opponent's 30 seconds. So each of you will get a 45 and a 30. You can use your time however you want. Do you have any questions, gentlemen, before I say the question? Nope. Okay. The question is going to come from the fandom side of fan zone. <laughs> and your question is, if someone you knew was going to watch the MCU for the first time, what one movie in the entire series would you suggest that they skip? The question again. If someone you knew were to watch the MCU for the first time, what one movie in the entire series would you suggest that they skip? The Incredible Hulk. Knew that was coming. Um, Captain Marvel. Okay. So, uh, The Incredible Hulk and Captain Marvel. I'm going to stay on screen uh, to give you guys your countdowns and everything. Um, so, Caleb, you will be going first. You have 45 seconds on the clock when you start. 
At the end of the day, the Incredible the Incredible Hulk is an incredibly confusing film within the canon. It's not the same guy. At the end of the day, it doesn't actually set up anything that is too important. The Incredible Hulk is reintroduced to us with a new face in the Avengers, giving us absolutely everything we need about that character to know who he is going forward, and actually changes his personality enough that this is a totally new person from the beginning. There's no one really too important that gets introduced later down the line that isn't reintroduced and reset up as someone that is inconsequential to that movie or redefined as who they are. I think the Incredible Hulk is plotless. Captain Marvel, at the end of the day, sets up who an entire force of the MCU is going to be. She shows up in an endgame and has an incredible part where she beats the shit out of Thanos and ends up saving Tony Stark. She does too much in endgame to just be a totally new character that's randomly introduced and not given any personality, as well as her dynamic to Fury or the Beeper. Time. The what? I'm sorry. The Beeper. Oh, the beat the, the pager. Okay, I was like, what the fuck did you just say? Cameron, Sorry. 45 seconds when you start talking. So I think the biggest knock against Captain Marvel is that it's frankly just not a good movie. It is not a quality movie. It frankly feels like a waste of time. It introduces you to a character who makes herself unlikable over the amount of time. Coho says it introduces you to her personality and you want her to have a personality in Endgame. She doesn't have a personality in Endgame. You don't care about her because you didn't care about her in Captain Marvel. Also, her introduction in Endgame works perfectly fine without Captain Marvel existing. Captain Marvel is a very well-known comic book character. You have the pager at the end of Infinity War. She comes in an Endgame. Congratulations. Captain Marvel exists. She's great. She's doing things and she's doing it well. The Incredible Hulk introduces important recurring characters such as Ross it's not actually that bad of a movie it's kind of entertaining has really cool action scenes uh also it does recur later on and brings things back like the abomination into Shang-Chi uh and you also underestimate the intelligence of your audience because you're saying they cast a new actor and it might get confusing no it won't people understand recasting okay, uh Coho 30 seconds Captain Marvel's a worse movie, but at the end of the day, it is still too important to have one of the tenets of the MCU just show up in Endgame with no introduction. The beeper and the connection to Fury is actually an important emotional connection, because otherwise, who the fuck is this character and what's she doing here? And she does not matter to Endgame if you don't know who she is. The Incredible Hulk, I'm not underestimating the, the intelligence. I'm saying it's literally an inconsequential part. The Abomination is reintroduced in Shang-Chi as a meaningless character. Ross is introduced in Civil War, and the Hulk is reintroduced. There is nothing about the Incredible Hulk that is too that is too consequential to bring back, whereas yours is kind of an important tenet of the MCU going forward. Time. Cam, 30 seconds. So the thing is, her story isn't an important tenet for the MCU moving forward. It takes place in the 90s, so everything that it uh, influences directly has already happened. You jump 30 years into the future where all of the influences and everything has happened, and it really doesn't move forwards through the timeline. You get the things you need through the TV shows. You get the things you need through the other movies. You get them through Endgame. You get them through Infinity War. Her introduction in Endgame is honestly better for the character because you don't have this distaste for her. You don't have this dislike for her. In The Incredible Hulk, you get an interesting portrayal of the Hulk. You get these characters that come back later, and you get cool action sequences that will recur later on time okay this is a lot closer than i thought it was going to be when i heard the answers and i we are all out of sorts here we're gonna move everybody around there we go okay <sighs> nick are you thinking or are you what, what yeah is, i haven't written anything yet yeah yeah me neither I'm actually just so close to my board because I'm writing so That's what I didn't know because you, you're being weird all night. Are you being asked about 1947's Crossfire right now? <sighs> <laughs> Did you just watch it last week? With oh, wait. No, no. I get it. Okay. <laughs> I can see the glare of the website here. Uh, Stop it. Board. Sorry. Okay. Good job, guys. This was... Yeah, yeah. Captain Marvel was not the movie I would have picked. But... 
If you ask me personally, if like a movie I hate, Captain Marvel sucks, dude. Both very skippable. Honestly, though, I was I was waiting for someone to say Black Widow, Ant Man and the Wasp, Iron Man two, Iron Man three. Like there were a lot that I. Yeah. Incredible Hulk he... was the obvious one, but I, there were a lot. It was the I, obvious one, and that's why I did not want to pick it. There, right. there were a lot of ones that I thought of before Captain Marvel, that I, and then you said it, and I was like, okay, we'll see what he says. Oh, no. so. I went Hulk, Captain Marvel, and then like the rest of the list. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I like Iron Man two and three, I and love Black Widow, and, and I, I like those movies, but they're, I, I would, I would have picked one of those. Right. Is everybody good? Or Nick, Nick still looks. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Yeah, I wrote something down. Okay, yeah, I'm looking over at the list of movies. I'm trying to figure it out. Okay, um, Kirk is starting on this one, I think. I think so. Yeah, go ahead, Kirk. Yeah, um, like I said, both very skippable movies. Good choices. Um, I, I think Cam had an uphill battle just because it was the. I mean obviously the least consequential to the MCU. Um, and I think he did a good job of, you know, coming up with arguments, but I still went with Coho. Um, Cause I think Coho, you know, had that crux of the argument where, you know, it has the least to offer. It has the least to do. It's not a very good movie. Um, and everything that gets it up there, you know, cause um, Cam kind of had me. He was like, well, you have Thunderbolt Ross, but you know, then, you know, Coho, uh, Coho pointed out that, well, he, he's a, he's in a uh, civil war and you see him and that kind of establishes him. So, um, Holtzman fought valiantly there with that, with that pick, but um, uh, Coho is just too strong. Yeah. Um, ever since we had the famous uh, best Pixar lead character, and it was like, I think we did Woody versus Lightning, and Lightning ended up winning, I never just like immediately think of like the obvious answer is like, mm. not saying that's what you did, Kirk, just like my own process. Like I tried to listen to both things. Um, because I think Coho does have the obvious answer. I actually went with Cameron. Um, I thought that Cameron did a good job of saying, like Kirk said, he was he had the uphill battle. He was able to explain to me that the Incredible Hulk actually does have some good action moments. That the audience, um, that Coho is maybe like not banking on the audience enough to understand, like the whole recasting thing isn't shouldn't be a negative thing um and was also showing me how it actually has things for the future of the mcu beyond just like thunderbolt ross so um it was it was really close and i thought his whole thing for captain marvel of like you could take this movie out and just have her show up in endgame and it might have even been better considering the low quality of captain marvel so it was really close for me but i went with cam which means that nick gets to decide this whole thing. Okay. <laughs> he doesn't this is a great to. question because I'm trying to convince my parents to watch the MCU for the first time. Um, this is true. This is a good question. Pretty sure I was supposed to go first on this one. But no, late. you weren't. That's one, and then two, three, four, five. It's the whoever goes last goes first on the next Whatever. one. Whatever. It's too late now. You both revealed your um anyway uh i agree there was an obvious choice uh and it was chosen uh and uphill battle um i wanted so bad because coho kept saying 
um, how like Captain Marvel and Endgame makes no sense without her movie. I don't know how much I necessarily agree with that personally. And and Cameron did combat that, but I wanted so badly for Cameron to just flat out say, "What happens when you watch the first Avengers and there's a random huge green guy that shows up? You don't think that's a little confusing?" Um, I think that would have helped. That being said, he did still say like the Hulk shows up later, Ross shows up later, Abomination. I, I liked the Abomination throne, even though like it's just a tease. Ultimately, what sold me is Coho kept pitching Captain Marvel as being like this important movie for the MCU because she's going to be a main player going forward. We don't really know that. As of right now, she's in Avengers Endgame. Um, and Cameron, by saying how bad the movie was and how like learning her personality and that actually not helping kind of made me think Cameron deserved it. Which means your winner is Cameron Holtzman. Wow. Uh, absolutely nuts. Uh, that was wild. We're going to start talking to Coho. Coho, really close match. Uh, you look a little disappointed. Uh, tell us, how do you how do you feel about the match? Nick Tuick, my least favorite judge ever, because he made me think I had it for the last five seconds <laughs> before he threw that random bullshit. Out. I wanted to like, uh, make an exciting No, I, I I think Cam argued the last point really well. I'm kicking myself for not mentioning the scrolls either, because they're going to be huge players going forward. I forgot to bring up the scrolls. I think that would have been the nail in the coffin on that fight um, for him, and I forgot to bring them up because I I. I I hate going first in the speed round, but that was one where it was like, I need to take the correct answer. Um, and and while I agree Captain Marvel's the worst movie, like, yeah, he he fought it really well. Um, yeah, I mean, I was never going to win either of his points. I didn't expect to win his points. I just wanted to win mine. Uh, after the Jacoby match, all I wanted was to win my own fucking arguments. Um, that's all my goal going forward with every match because Jacoby's infuriatingly good at this uh, and Cam's infuriatingly good at this. Um, Cam did a great job. He deserves the win tonight. And uh, yeah, um, debate is an exhaust, an exhausting activity for me. I love doing it. I love doing it in the moment. And then the lead up to it, I have to like psych myself up to be in debate because I'm like, I don't want to really fight this person. I don't know if I can formulate this argument. I don't know if I can really put everything in it. And then I get here and I'm fine. Um, so I think I did. I think I did well for a long break. Uh, but but I fucking hate Cameron Holtzman. <laughs> I hate him. In the moment I was playing him, I was like, "Fuck, I don't want to do this," because uh, he's really good at this, um, and he's gonna go really far. So that's fair. All right. Well, Coho, you did a great job. You're one of the best players. We are one of the oldest players that we have here in the league, and we like having you because you always make it entertaining. I remember, like, I've, I've I think we played in a title match, and those little things, that you, yeah, the those times of you doing the. As someone's yeah. talking, like it drives me drives me crazy. So I saw it happening tonight. I saw it uh, bothering Cam. So you still definitely have it, um, and we'll see you next time. I'm excited to see whatever. Happens. Can't wait until eventually I face Cody Newberry and I and I don't show up for the match. <laughs> Cody and I have a long, outstanding, undebated title match. That's and when true. he said he's coming to Fan Zone, I went, "Fuck, we're gonna eventually have to fight now." And I don't want that, but we're gonna end up doing it at some point. That'd be fun. All right. Well, Koa, we'll see you soon. Uh, let's go over to the winner. Cameron, you looked like you genuinely did not think you had pulled it out, but you Yeah, because Nick faked everyone out. I thought I was being game. general enough. I, I liked, no one knew what I was going to say. Anyway. I liked the drama, but Cameron, you have the win. You're moving on in this picture. What do you feel? Uh, I feel good. Yeah. Um, 
I've never seen Superman Returns. Never seen Silence. Uh, so those were two uphill battles, and I uh, those are both movies that are over two and a half hours long. And uh, I am a full time student who has other trivia matches to attend to. So I uh, watched two minutes of the scene, and I watched not a damn second of Superman Returns. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, I had fun. Yeah, like like Coho said, um, like we hang out a lot. Like he's one of my best friends in this community. The one thing both of us know is how to get under each other's skin. And I think you could see that throughout this match. Uh, Koho had me very annoyed and very angry at points. Uh, but I got to use Koho's on Letterboxd review against him. And that was fun. Uh, <laughs> I didn't win, but still. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, so, Cam, what this does mean is you are actually moving on to a contender match uh, to play Rue. You're going to play Rue Moses um, for a shot at the big time. So what do you think about playing Rue? Um, I'm excited. It's going to be very interesting, especially because I know like Rue is more a fandom guy and I'm more a Warzone guy. So it'll be interesting to see how things play out. But uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be fun. Uh, the nice thing about fighting Rue is like, as far as I know, Rue doesn't know that much about me. So he can't hopefully get under my skin the way Goho does. Um, yeah. Awesome. Don't watch Captain Marvel again. It's bad. Well, I think you should watch it. But anyway, uh, Cam, congrats. Great win. Uh, we'll see you real soon with the next match. So uh, let's get final thoughts, starting with Kirk. Coho should have brought up how without Captain Marvel, we don't know how Nick Fury lost his eye. I think that that probably would have put it over the top. Um, but no, this worked out great for me because I voted for Coho three out of four times. And that's perfect because he can't be mad at me for losing because I voted for him a lot, and Holtzman can't be mad at me for because he won, and my votes didn't matter. So um, I'm happy. I feel good about myself. Um, and in the end, that's all that matters. So good job, guys. <laughs> that's fair. Uh, Nick, final thoughts from you? Uh, first of all, that last question was a trick question. Uh, the correct answer is, why, why are you even going to waste your time watching this? Watch them all. What are you doing? Um, anyway, uh, opposite. I, I voted for Cameron like every time. So, Coho, you can be mad at me. Permission granted. Uh, I thought you dominated that performance question. So, I, I, you guys were like really split. And I was like, really? I, th I thought that was, was a pretty obvious one. Um, outside of that, I think Cameron did a really good job arguing the things he admittedly said he doesn't know much about. And then he like dominated in the things he knows a lot about, which is like a really dangerous combination going forward. So, looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. All right, well, that's going to do it for us at FanZone. Uh, in two weeks, we have another debut match. We got Robert Kastner taking on Jack Pinchuk. Fucking hell. Uh, that's going to be in two weeks. <laughs> so look out for that. And then we have uh, we have our contender match. We got Rue going up against Cam uh, to find out who's going to play uh, head honcho over here, Kirk. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Uh, thanks for watching this one, guys. We'll see you real soon with that next match. Until then, have a good one. That's my bad, I was sending a tweet.